0: Um, as New City Church, we've been in a series of messages since we moved into the building just a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we, were, we were in a, If you're new here, we were in a uh, middle school, a pandemic hit, then we were virtual, and now we're in our building. And so we thought it was really fitting for us to just take a few weeks to really lean into the vision of what God's called us to. And so week one, we looked at, at, our, at our vision, which is this, that we exist to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. And what that means for us is that a vision is like a compass, right? It, it, it is kind of the, the guiding principle of your organization or your church, right? So for us, when, when things are going well, we're living like family, which, which means this, that we're leaning into conflict when it exists. That means we're loving each other deeply and well, that we're valuing relationships over performance or perfection or anything else, that people matter more than anything else in the world. So that's our vision, and then the values are kind of the guardrails of us living out of that vision. So week one, we talked about our, our, our first of four values, which is this, that we are humbled by grace and depending on the Spirit, that, that God's grace, when it hits our hearts, it, 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 it takes us down low. It doesn't elevate us, it takes us low, because that's how we learn to live in God's grace. We can't live in God's grace when we're living in pride. Martin Luther, the famous reformer over 500 years ago, once said that the law is for the proud and the gospel is for the brokenhearted. The Apostle Paul followed it up, and or well, the Apostle Paul said it first, actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul wants to shake this thorn that he has in his flesh, and the Lord meets him, Jesus meets him, and he says, listen, Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. You're going to keep that thorn, buddy, because it's how I'm going to keep you close to me. So what that means for us as a church is that we value the fact that we're all broken sinners that desperately need God's grace to make us whole. And we look at other people and we understand they're broken sinners, even if they don't know it yet or not. And they need God's grace to make them whole. And we live out of that. It changes the way that we treat one another. Because you know what actually happens? We pray. Because only desperate people pray. I'm convinced of that. You only pray when you're desperate for God's grace and for God's love in your life. The second value we looked at this was, uh, was that we're in the city and for the city. The reason that we <laughs> asked God to, to give us the city and give us this building was because we wanted to be in proximity to the problems of our community so that we could be a part of the solution of God making the city whole. And so that's why we're here in downtown Lawrenceville. Some of you are new and you know that, or you, you notice that. Some of you are old and you've, you've moved in with us and, and you know that our heartbeat is for this community. And, and we've said that we want to make a big splash in a little space so that we can see the gospel go deep in this place. Um, the the thing that Brandon talked about last week was our third value, which is this. We are reconciled and we are reconciling. We We fully believe that That every person on the face of the planet is estranged from God, if not for the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is, is that our first reconciliation is to our Father in heaven through the work of Christ. And through Christ's work, that ministry of reconciliation is now our ministry. It is what we are about. We are about pursuing estranged relationships because we have the power of the gospel that lives inside of us and makes those things whole. And so that means whenever we have a conflict with one another in the church, we're going to seek it out. We're going to seek to resolve it and ask for forgiveness. If our city has a problem with reconciliation, we're going to lean into it. We're not going to run away from it. We're going we're gonna to be like, we used the image of a, of a firefighter a few weeks ago. We're going to be running into the burning building, not out of it, because we've got the hope of the gospel. So that, that's what we want to be about. The, the last value we're going to look at today is this value that we are planted and planting. And this, this week is really about how we are going to do ministry as a church, how we've done it for the last six years, and how we're going to keep doing it. And it's really about the main thing that Jesus called his church to do. And that's to go and make disciples, but not just disciples, to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. So um, if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip over to Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Very familiar passage to some of you if you've been around the church, but as you're turning there, I want to share a story with you. Megan and I, my wife and our children, moved to Atlanta in 2012 to be a part of a church planting residency where we could, by God's grace, learn to plant a church that would, um, that would bear fruit and, uh, and that would be um, on God's mission here, here, in, here in metro Atlanta. And, you know, initially we had our doubts about uh, the need for another church in Atlanta, Let's be honest, guys. Uh, Atlanta does big church better than anybody in the world, right? It's just what we do here, right? It's big. So I started asking some questions because, you know, New City Church is not called New City Church because we're bringing something new to the city. We just think God's making all things new, okay? And that's why we're called New City Church. But we started to just sense what does Lawrenceville need, what does Gwinnett County need from a church? Uh, Because what we sensed is that they didn't need another worship service, okay? Okay. We didn't need a, another church that would just focus on a, a corporate worship gathering like this, but rather this would be an outpost where we are equipped and sent out to be disciple makers. And so I would meet with guys in 2013, I met with probably at least 100 guys for lunch or coffee at Local Republic, Panera, or you know, Starbucks, or wherever, wherever I wasn't tired of that week. <laughs> and I'd meet with these guys and I'd ask them three questions. The first question I'd say is, are you a person of faith? And if they said, yeah, I'm a person of faith, you know, I'm, I'm Hindu or I'm Buddhist I'm Muslim. I would explore that. I've talked to them, and, and I've them about Jesus. Uh, if they said, yeah, I'm a person of faith, uh, I'm a Christian, then I would follow it up with another question. Um, I, I would use really the word that Jesus uses uh, for a Christian, which is disciple, right? And, and I said, what does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? And, um, and I mean, how would you answer that question? What does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? You would say things like, well, you know, I want to follow Jesus, so that means I want to read his word and, and, and be in community with other people um, and I want to be a part of the work of the church. I want to be a part of all those things is how you would answer that question. And then I would ask the third question, which is the reason I'm preaching this sermon today. I would ask this question, how do you go about making disciples? Crickets. Crickets, right? How do you go about making disciples? Well, I don't know. The church does that, right? Yeah, the church does that and the church is you. The whole reason that Megan and I felt led to plant this church the way that we did is because we wanted to be a church that made disciples, that knew how to make disciples, no matter what church body they're a part of, no matter what city we're in, no matter what else is going on, that we're called to do the main thing that Jesus commissioned and empowered us to do, which is to be disciple makers. So let's read about Jesus's main thing in Matthew 28. Jesus came to his disciples. This was after Jesus had risen from the dead. He had made many appearances to his disciples, and he was getting ready to go to be with his Father in heaven to intercede for Christians. And he gave his his disciples one last command. He said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what that means is that you've seen my life, you've seen my death, you've seen my resurrection, you know I'm God. You need to listen to me. (laughs) And he goes on to say, Because all authority has been given to me and I'm God, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, the better way to read this in the original language is we typically as Westerners place the emphasis on go, right? We go and we do mission trips and we go and we do this and that and those are great things but really the emphasis is on the imperative in the sentence which is make. So the sentence actually reads like this, as you go, make disciples. It changes the way that you think about it, doesn't it? As you go to work, make disciples. As you go to school, make disciples. As you go to the grocery store, be about making disciples, right? That's, it's, it's a holistic thing that he's called us to. And he tells us what those are to be disciples of, uh, to be uh, disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? It means bringing them into the body of the church. There is no such thing as a baptized person that's not part of a church. You are baptized into a community, into a fellowship. We are, you're baptized into the life of the church. There's no place to be Christian other than the church, right? No other place. That's why you're here this morning. And he, and, he, and, he sa- and he goes on to say, also teach them to observe all that I have commanded you in my life. And behold, because this is going to be incredibly difficult, you need to remember that I'm with you to the end of the age. Jesus you, when you think about Jesus's ministry, how many times did he do what I'm doing right now? Take a big group of people, share God's word with them, and then kind of get on with your, their day. He did it in the Sermon on the Mount. That took us about a year to preach through that one, right? That was a, that was a big one. He did it in his hometown in Nazareth, right? You remember when, when Jesus, I think it's Luke chapter 4, he opens up the scroll you reads from Isaiah 61, he says, oh yeah, by the way, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your midst. He says that, and then what, 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 his, uh, what do his friends and family members do to him? They almost run him off a cliff and they try to kill him, right? J- Jesus spent most of his time not doing this. He spent most of his time imparting his life and God's word to a small group of followers, didn't he? Most of his time. A lot of times we will take the message of Jesus in the gospel, we'll say, Jesus died for my sin, I receive him in faith, I have new life. We'll take that and we'll preach that, but we will deny his method. We'll say, no, 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 Jesus, you kind of got it wrong. You should, If you would have been wanted to be more effective, you would have preached more sermons like this, Jesus. Could have drawn bigger crowds, would have been better. But Jesus' method is not just descriptive, it is prescriptive for the church. And it is an area, if I could say this, as in Atlanta now for the last eight years, it is an area that we have vastly overlooked as a church in Metro Atlanta. So our our call as a church is, is really what Megan and I discovered, and this will be our outline for today as we look at Jeremiah 17 and Matthew 13, is that disciple makers, if you want to give your life to the main thing that Jesus called you to give your life to, which is making disciples, they're committed to at least three things. The first thing is this, Committed to a lifestyle of depth. Second thing is this. Disciple makers are committed to the process of maturity, but not just the process of maturity like I'm growing in my faith in a vacuum, but the process of maturity in the context of life, life with other believers. Committed to life, growing in maturity with other believers, but not just for the sake of having a happy holy huddle, but for the sake of the third point, committed to being, multiplying our lives in a way that bears fruit. Jesus was all about his disciples giving their lives away. The whole thing is about that. And so for us, we're going to look at these, these really three principles today because our mission as a church is to make, mature, and multiply disciple-makers. And our prayer and our hope is that we would make mature and multiply disciple makers by the Spirit's power that will be sent all over the face of the earth and all over the corners of Atlanta and everywhere in between, Um, because that's what Jesus has called us to do. So let's dig into the first point here. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah 17 and Matthew 13. And the way I'm going to do this today is a little different. I'm going to run those passages kind of parallel, because they really say the same thing in just a little bit different way. Uh, So first point, if you're a note taker. Disciple makers are committed to a lifestyle of depth. So let's, let's look at Jeremiah 17 together. This, this is a passage uh, where the Lord, uh, Lord came to Jeremiah and spoke to him on behalf of uh, the Israelites. And here's, what, here's the picture that the Lord painted for Israel. See, things were going well in Israel uh, for Israel at the time they were getting ready to go into captivity. But he's, he, gives, he paints a picture of what he calls the cursed man and the blessed man. Um, I don't know about you, but I'll, I want to be the blessed man, not the cursed man, right? So here's, here's what he says about the blessed man. Here's what's, here's what's distinct about the blessed man or woman's life. He says this, verse 7 and 8. He said, blessed is the man whose trust, whose trust, who trusts in the Lord, but not who just trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree. So think about a tree that's planted by water. That sends out its roots by the stream. So, what you see about this this passage in Jeremiah 17 is he gives the image of a tree. Now, a lot of times we think about a tree and we think about what's above the surface, not what's below the surface, right? He says, well, if what he goes on to say in Jeremiah 17 is that if you if you really want to, if your life is like a tree and you want to be a flourishing tree, what's going on below the surface matters more than what's going on above the surface. In fact, what's going on below the surface of your life is what is going on above will depend on later. And, and, he, and he paints this picture that, that that the substantially blessed person is a rooted person, is a person who has deep roots in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, whose trust is not in its circumstances, it's not in uh, its its wealth, it's not in its you know the, the political climate of the day, it's in none of those things. It is the Lord alone that fi- that they find their trust in. And that there is more going on underneath the surface of their lives than is shown in the fruit of their lives. That they that they have wisdom hidden in the in the secret heart and truth buried deep down in their soul. And church, this is so necessary because we live in an 140-character cancel culture. Do you you realize that? We live in a a culture that seeks instant gratification. This uproots, pun intended, everything that our culture values. Because what this is saying is that there are things about your life that no one is going to know about except for you and the Lord because you are sunk so deep down into him. But our culture says if if you're a spiritual person, you need to let everybody know. Everybody needs to know about your walk with God. The verses, you need to put them out there. And and, and we just kind of get, we start living for other people and other things other than just our relationship with God, sinking ourselves deep down into him through his word. The Lord says that the blessed man is a deep man. He is not a shallow man. Did you know that that your soul is hungry? Not just because it's a second service either. Your soul is hungry... Um, and you're, you're going to feed it something. You're going to feed your soul something each and every day. It is why, for most of us, when we wake up in the morning and we reach over to our nightstand, what do we pick up? Our phone. And we don't pick up the Bible app. We pick up the news app, right? We want to see, or social media. We want, we, our souls are hungry when they wake up in the morning. They need that spiritual breakfast. And we feed our souls garbage so much, right? We feed our souls cotton candy that just is not going to sustain us throughout the day. Our souls are hungry, and the question is, what are we going to feed it? Jeremiah says that the deep man is going to feed his soul the word of the Lord because his trust is the Lord. So Jesus kind of parallels this, and he does it by telling a parable from Matthew chapter 13. Now, if you're new to the church, a parable is a story that Jesus would tell that is about a real-life situation that paints really one spiritual truth that you, you can grab onto. And so this parable is unique because Jesus not only tells the parable, but he also explains the parable. I think it's the only time in the Bible he does that. It's the parable of the sower. So let's flip over to Matthew chapter 13 together and read this. That same day, uh, verse 1, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower, or a farmer, went out to sow, and as he sowed some seed, so think about a farmer who's got a bag full of seed, he's just slinging it out like this. As he sows the seed, um, some different things happen. Some of the seeds fell along the path. So the beaten path that was that walked on and, and, and driven on and ridden on, and the seed on that soil, the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. So what he's saying about right there, just pause right there for a second. He's saying that the seed, which is the word of God, it fell on this soil, which is a type of human heart. <laughs> and it didn't have much It didn't have much soil because there was a lot of rock in it. And so the seed was forced to root itself quickly so that it could spring up and give life to the roots. But the roots couldn't go down very deep. So he goes on to say this, but when the sun rose, the the seed that was on the rocky soil was scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Here then the parable of the sower, he goes on to explain it here, When anyone hears the word, now I want you to listen to that. This is a parable, not about doing the word, but about hearing the word. Because how you hear the word affects how you live the word. If you do not hear the word as the word is, you're not going to live the word as God has intended. So it's a a parable about hearing. He says, hear the parable of the sower. Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and he snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has, again, no roots in himself, but he endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, he falls away. Jesus is telling his disciples that true growth takes time to see. Parents in the room, you need to hear that. True growth takes time to see. There is in, in us as parents, if you're a parent, there is a temptation to try and make your children be further along than they actually are. But the beauty of a covenant family is is that our children get to grow up in the context of a loving family that's gonna preach them God's word, where they can really root themselves in the gospel and not just fake it for mom and dad. We need that type of an environment as we seek to lead our children in that way. You know, we, we all have these moments in life where we, where we realize that we're not as far along as we wished we'd be. That we have a long way to go in maturity And the answer is that we sink ourselves more deeply into Jesus and his family. That's how we grow. But the the problem with our shallow nature and our shallow culture today, especially in the West, is that we have this cacophony of voices. You know, all these voices that are speaking, claiming to be truth to us. And and the, the problem is not that there are so many voices. The problem is that in our hearts, they all have the same weight. That's the problem. And so it gets hard to discern what's true and what's not true, because the Lord's voice isn't the predominant voice that drowns out the other ones. This is why the, the person that sinks themselves deep is able to withstand the circumstances that are around us. But the person who just takes a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this and a little bit of that is confused. And we don't know what is true. This is what Jesus was trying to point out there was there was this guy that uh, Megan and I and our kids met on our family beach trip uh, about eighteen months ago. Um, we call him Brian from the beach because we met Brian at the beach. Brian from the beach was an interesting guy We were throwing football at the kids on the beach and you know I overthrew it or they overthrew it or something and Brian picked up the the football and I immediately noticed that this is a unique guy i 'm not going to forget Brian has uh, he has tattoos all over his body. Um, and his face. I mean, he's got tattoos everywhere, and so you meet him, and he's this really bubbly guy, really nice, and we start talking and throwing football back and forth with our kids, and and uh, he finds out I'm a pastor, and he says, hey, man, I've been on this, like, spiritual journey. I was wondering, man, do you think you could baptize me here in the ocean? And I was like, wow, that escalated quickly. Like, like man, that was quick, and so, you know, I, I was like, Brian, you know, that's not really how it, how, how it works. I mean, there's a couple... There's a couple instances in the Bible, Ethiopian eunuch, all that where, where someone was baptized pretty quick. But that's not not the norm, you know, in church history. And and so anyway, we I found out that he actually lives in Metro Atlanta because it turns out everybody from Metro Atlanta goes to the beach in Florida. And so he he lived like 45 minutes from my house. I said, okay, I got a plan. Let's meet and let's let's talk about God's word and just see if you understand it. And and so anyway, we meet together over the course of maybe two or three meetings, and uh and I just felt led to share the parable of the soils with him. And uh, we read it, and I explained it, and he was getting it. And I said, man, where do you think you're at on this? And, and uh, he was like, oh, do you know the type of person I'm talking about, like an all-in person? Like they are all-in on whatever they're doing. This was like Jesus for him at that moment. And I, I pray that he will become a, a genuine follower of Jesus. But, but he just kind of looked at me and, and said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really... I think it's like I'm on the rocky soil here. I think I'm just kind of getting excited about this. And so, you know, but but it's interesting what Jesus says and what Jeremiah says because it says that the only way to know whether you've really sunk your heart deep into the gospel or not, into God's word or not, is that you have to experience persecution on account of the word. You have to experience trial. You have to experience darkness. You have to experience pain. You have to experience all those things. Because if you don't experience those things, and your circumstances of your life don't go awry, how in the world do you know if you're really a follower of Jesus or not? How do you know if you're rooted or not? And so what, how do you know if you have a depth of, of rootedness in your life? It's, so you think about those things in your life that you wish never would be a part of your life. The painful moments, the trying moments, the moments of darkness that you have in your heart and in your life. And you wish to never experience those things. But they are the, they are the very circumstances and situations that God has crafted, sovereignly crafted in our lives, to sink us deeper into his son Jesus. And so the second thing we're going to talk about is this, is that disciple-makers aren't only committed to a life of death like personally and sinking our, our, ourselves into Jesus. But disciple makers are committed to the process of maturity in the context of life. So disciples of Jesus, what we realize is that it's something really important, that none of us have arrived, that all of us are in process. That none of us have arrived and all of us are in process. So it doesn't matter you know how much you think David Dang has his life together. He's in process, all right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you think another per, how how awry you know another person's life has gone. They're they're in process, and God is doing good things in their life. It it doesn't matter what's going on on the surface. A lot of times we are in process, and God is pursuing us. I mean, think about those of you that went to college or or high school, and you had um you know you had a like a science class, right? Um, and, and you had the lecture if you're in college that was like three, hour, three credit hours, and then you had this other one credit hour that was called the, the lab, right? You got the lecture and the lab. Well, a lot of times what we think is that, um, you know, that, that our lives will change if we just go to the lecture. If we just pour ourselves into the Word all day long and we just listen to lots of good podcasts and Bible studies and, and things like that, that our lives will change. But the way that God has designed us to change is, is not just lecture, but lab. And, and, and what that means for Christians is that we live life, in the, we, we live our lives with other believers and everything is on the table in our lives. So a lot of times Christians, they'll get around and, and we'll, we'll have these great Bible studies and we'll just, we'll talk about the word, but we won't talk about our lives. You know, we'll, we'll talk about this and yeah, man, just, just, just so good. And, and our lives are falling apart. It's like we don't believe that that God is interested in our lives. He's not interested in pouring his word into our hearts in the context of a community that can speak the truth and love to one another. See, this is where discipleship differs from just a Bible study. Discipleship differs from a Bible study because we not only value the lecture, we value the lab as well. And we want to put those two together as we live as the family of God together. Jeremiah says this, He goes on to to paint this picture of the tree. He says he's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. And and here's the difference. It doesn't fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green. So what happens when the tree, when the heat comes to the plant, uh, the the heat comes, the season of trial comes, it it reveals directly what's underneath the surface, right? I mean, any tree can look any, well, any grass can look like it's growing when it's raining, right? I mean, this is why you have to mow your yard twice a week in, in Atlanta this summer, okay? It's ridiculous, right? Three inches of rain in the afternoon, crazy. But, but the, the thing is, is that the, root, the, the roots are revealed and the, through the fruit when the, when the circumstances don't go the way that you want them to. So crisis hits our lives, and it reveals that we've been giving our attention to the wrong things. Because we are in crisis, and we are grasping at things that cannot satisfy us. Back in this parable, Jesus, he talks about the circumstances of life when he talks about this seed. Pick up in verse 7, he says this. He says, this other seed, it, it, the first seed, it fell on the path that, you know, the, the enemy stole it from their heart. Other seed, it fell on the, the rock soil and it. it. It sprung up, but it didn't have any depth, and it got scorched. But, but there's this other seed that fell, and thorns grew up and choked them. As for what was sown among the thorns, Jesus says, This is the one who hears the word. Remember, this is a parable about hearing. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the farmer realizes something as he's sowing seed. That the, that the thorns, if the seed falls among thorns, that it, the thorns have the potential to completely choke out the life of the seed. Now, when Jesus talks about this, when you, when you think about thorns in the Scriptures, thorns are a result of the fall, right? You read Genesis chapter 3. It's part of the curse to Adam that, that he would labor, but he would labor in thorns. And, and the, the interesting thing about thorns is that they, they take over whatever you give them an area for I me. Mean, just look at, if you've ever been like in a, like a, like a briar patch before, I mean, they just consume everything. And, and I think this is so key because um, whenever a Christian hears the word and it goes in one ear and it goes out the other, and it doesn't impact our heart to the point where it causes us to repent and worship, What we're doing as Christians is we're leaving thorns in our heart and hoping that the seed of the gospel will still grow in it. There's a reason why Kendall led us through a prayer this morning, the Lord's Prayer, through the last petition. And what was it? Deliver us from the evil one, right? Keep us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. It's it's because whenever, whenever the word of God hits our ears and it doesn't cause us to repent of the things that are out of line in our hearts, we're like leaving a thorn patch in our heart hoping for the gospel seed to grow and it just doesn't happen like that. And so my question to you as you think about that parable is where is it that, that maybe you're in direct disobedience of the word of God right now? And what do you expect to happen by living that way? I know this is really straightforward here but it's the most loving thing I could do today. What do you expect to happen living in direct disobedience? Just, just welcoming the thorn to just choke out the seed of the gospel in your heart. But the the beauty is, is that God has not only, he's not left us alone, but he's given us a church, a family. But the family of God is only as good in your heart and in your life as you make it to be in your calendar and in your life, right? I mean, it's only as good as you make it to be. So 1 Peter 2, I was reading this this week. it, It really reminded me of what we're talking about here. He talks about this idea that we're we're called to grow up into salvation together with one another as the church. Let me read it for you. It says, It's like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, you're coming to Jesus, who is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He says, here's what's happening with the church. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying that what actually happens in the church when we get this right is that Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. We sing about that. We read about that. Peter tells us about that. The Psalms tell us about that. And what happens with us is that we are actually the spiritual house. We are the temple. The scripture say that the, the, the temple's in our hearts now. Like We are the temple. and So we're being built into this church, this spiritual house. And each block is dependent on the other one for growth. Do you see that? So that means that how the word hits your heart affects how the word hits my heart a lot of times because we're this same spiritual house together. And so my brother or sister that's living in unrepentant sin is actually affecting the entire church. Or my brother or sister that's repenting a sin and fighting the good fight is impacting the entire church, the entire discipleship group or missional community. Everyone's affected because we are not in a vacuum. We are God's people collectively together. I was with, um, I was with my mentor group this week. I have five 15-year-old, Kendall was with me as well, 15-year-old uh, young African-American men that I mentor, that I have been mentoring them for five years, and I, I don't know. I I love fifteen-year-olds, but man, it's really hard to have a a substantial conversation at times, especially when they're all together. And so we were just kind of goofing around here at the church building on Wednesday, and I was thinking, what are we doing? Like, is anything happening? (laughs) Like, like the seeds being planted? I see no growth. And uh, all of a sudden, one of the guys he just says, "Hey, Ryan, I I got something I want to share with the group," and he opens up his heart and says, "You know, I've got this friend that just overdosed on drugs." A 16-year-old girl, dead. Was hard. He, was just, he was trying to hold it together, you know, as a 15-year-old boy would. And, and I, just, I just sat there and I watched his vulnerability in our group open the whole thing up. And we had the best, most rich discussion about Jesus and the hope we have in him that we have ever had before in five years, all because one young man was willing to go there. He was willing to be real with the rest of the group. This is the type of spiritual house that God has in mind for us. Do you have a place in this church or in some other community where you're able to be yourself and be a beloved son or daughter of God? Because if you don't, how are we growing as the spiritual household of God? Disciple makers are committed to lifestyle depth, but we're also committed to the process of maturity with one another And we put our life on the table in that. And lastly, disciple makers are committed to multiplying our lives in a way that bears fruit. Let's read Jeremiah 17 and uh, Matthew 13. And I want you to listen for the phrase bear fruit. Um, Yeah, just listen for that phrase or fruit bearing. Jeremiah 17, 8 says, The root of tree is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit even in the drought. Matthew 13, Jesus says, "Other seeds fell on the good soil." This is the last one, the main point he wants to make, and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. You can see that the point for Jesus is not how much gain each seed had, but it's the point that they bared fruit, that they bore fruit. Um, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He's about interested in us hearing the word. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears, bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So your life as a disciple of Jesus is intended to bear fruit. So what does that mean, pastor? What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, in one sense, our lives should reflect the character of Jesus You know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, Galatians 5 kind of stuff. Our lives are meant to reflect Jesus. That's one way that our lives bear fruit. In another way, we are called to make disciples. We are called to make disciples of Jesus. That's the other way that our lives bear fruit. Because in the Bible, reproduction, fruit-bearing multiplication, is a byproduct of health. So things that are not multiplying are things that are not healthy. So as you, th- as you think about that, my question to you is this. Do you have a vision for multiplying your life into the lives of others or not? Do you, does your vision for spirituality and growth in Christ stop at you? I, I, this is in my notes. Let's go to Second, second Timothy 2.2. You're y'all, y'all the second service. Y'all get, you know, no time limits here. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2. Um, this is, this, pa- this passage is so significant, okay? Um, this is Paul, disciples, Timothy. Timothy, um, Timothy's kind of a fearful young pastor. And Paul gives him a vision for his life that is far greater than the vision he has for his own life. He says this, you then my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. And what you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what do you see in that passage? Paul's vision for Timothy's life is four generations of disciple makers. And most of us can't get past our quiet time. You see what I'm saying here? This is what God's called us to. Now, I don't want you to feel condemned today. I don't want you to feel beat up, maybe convicted like I am, but you are God's plan A for changing the world. You are God's plan A for making disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And the problem with with an over-churched culture is that we have an under-discipled church. And, And my heart is that we would care enough to do whatever it takes to be fruitful with our lives. To be fruitful in the sense that we see the world be blessed from this little church in Lawrenceville. Tim Keller uh, shared an illustration several years ago. He had this guy that asked him, you know, Tim, how do you, he's a pastor in New York City, very fruitful pastor, and he says, how do you have time to invest in these younger pastors and plant churches all over the, the world and uh, basically multiply your life. How do you have time for that? And, and Tim, Tim shared this example. He said, he said, you know, in the body, church growth that does not benefit the rest of the body is not biblical. In the human body, cells that only benefit themselves are called what? Cancer, right? How much of the time is the church have cancerous cells within it that only benefit themselves. Church, we're not called to be religious consumers. We're called to be equipped and mature disciples that give our lives away forever. Because we have nothing left to lose and everything to gain in the kingdom. So as you think about the vision that you have for your life and the vision that you have for disciple making, my, my hope and my heart is that you would take inventory this week and say, okay, where is it in my life that I need to grow up and I need to kind of to kind of to refocus my life to the, to the main thing that Jesus has for us? It might mean, like, I really need to become a Christian. Like, that'd be a good start. I, like, I'm not kidding. There, there are countless people that attend worship services that are not genuine followers of Jesus. It's, that's not a knock. It's just the reality of what it is. And so we should expect people in our midst to come to faith in Jesus. It might mean, you know, I've been sitting on the sidelines. I'm in the first service, we have a lady in here. Uh, I'm not going to tell you her name, but she's in her 70s. And she started um, discipling a group of women for the first time last year in her 70s. It's not too late. It's not too late. What do you have going on in your life that is more important than what Jesus called us to? Some of us need to clear our schedules. Like, Like disciple making ought to show up in our calendars. Jesus met with these guys on the beach in Matthew chapter 4 and and they had, a, they had a vision for their life that wasn't big enough. You know, they were, they were, they were, they were sons of fishermen who had taken up the family trade. They, they probably wanted to be rabbis, as, as history would tell us, but weren't good enough. Um, and Jesus met them in Matthew chapter 4, and, uh, and they were fishing. And Jesus said, come follow me and I will do what? Make you fishers of men. And immediately what did they do? They left a the boat in the... See of Galilee, they didn't care about that boat anymore, and they swam to the shore, and they followed Jesus. And they didn't do it perfectly, but they followed him. Are there any nets you need to lay down today? Any things you need to sit down, because you're not, you don't have the main thing as the main thing right now? That's my question I have for you today. Let's, let's pray, and we'll receive the Lord's table together. Father, I thank you um, that you are so kind and generous to us, that you, uh, that you gently lead us when our lives are off track. When, when we have, um, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, um, let, been deceived by the pursuit of riches or other things in our lives, and it's choked out the seed in our hearts. Lord, would this be a moment where we could, we could set down our nets, where we could repent and come back to our first love, which is Jesus and his mission in the world? Lord, would we be a church that is planted, that we go deep so that we can reach wide, Lord? That we are discipled so that we can be disciple makers. Not just so that we can be spiritually obese babies that are looking for another spoon of God's word for someone else to feed us. But that we would be on mission with you. So Lord, we pray that you'd meet us this morning and you would help us to have your vision for our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.